Hello and welcome to Tech Shock from Parent Zone, the podcast that looks at the impact of digital technologies on family life and unpicks the issues for parents, teachers, professionals and policymakers. I'm Vicky Shockbolt and I'm the founder and CEO of Parent Zone. And I'm Geraldine Bedell. I'm executive editor of Parent Zone. This week we're delighted to be talking to Leah Jewett of Outspoken Sex Ed. Leah and I know each other from way back because we both worked on The Observer at the same time and Leah is now a trained relationships and sex education facilitator and she's the co-editor of a book that's coming out in the autumn called Supporting New Digital Natives, Children's Mental Health and Wellbeing in a High-Tech Age. Hello Leah and welcome. Can you kick off by telling us why you started Outspoken? Yeah, sure. Hello. Um, It was... Going to a few Women of the World festivals that made me realize that I wanted to do something around empowering girls and women, um, and made me realize that I have a real passion for sex education and parents' involvement. So I left the Observer and Guardian, as you said, where we worked together. For almost, I was there about 20 years. Um, but my whole life, I'd always prized people opening up and having sort of emotional honesty and being as truthful as possible. So I wanted that to be at the heart of starting a social enterprise. Um, but a big motivating factor was my kids, uh, despite longing to talk openly about sex and relationships with them, with my daughter and my son, I found it really challenging. And even now, now that they're teenagers, it's still quite tricky. So my outspoken co-founder and I agreed, sat down and agreed, parents are the missing link in their children's sex education. And we focus on three main benefits to parents talking openly as being safeguarding and improving mental health and strengthening the parent-child connection. So ultimately, I really want young people to feel comfortable expressing who they are and being who they are, and for parents and children to enjoy learning from each other. And I feel that's the way we're going to be able to change our culture so we can talk more openly about and honestly about sex and relationships, because that affects everyone, all of us, our whole lives long. There is so much to talk to you about today. I'm interested to hear you saying that parents are the are the missing link. I think in the UK, there are quite a few missing links. I think traditionally sex education has not been something that we have done particularly well. In fact, I'd say that we've probably done it particularly badly, particularly compared to Scandinavian countries. I'm wondering what you're hoping to achieve with, um, with Outspoken. Is it, is it about being a clearinghouse for information? Is it about campaigning for change? Um, is it about working directly with families or is it a little bit of all of that? Um, how are you going to change the world when it comes to sex education? Yeah, I'd say it's all of those. Um, in terms of being a clearinghouse, yeah, we definitely collate and curate lots and lots of information. But um, I see Outspoken as doing two things, basically. So one, it's, it's a go-to resource for parents. So you can go to the website, you find tips by age and by topic, and we have the six topic areas, sex and relationships, bodies and body image, sexuality and identity, porn and sexting, consent and pleasure, and then gender stereotypes. And we have um, different sections. There's one that's quite... It really draws people a lot. It's called Mayday Moments, and that's focusing on tricky situations for parents. You know, your child finds a tampon or you find your child watching porn and how to deal with that. We have three experts who then give their opinion, different ideas. The second thing, which I think is so exciting about Spoken, we keep parents and teachers up to date with a newsletter, and it's a roundup of the latest news stories and events and petitions and surveys and celebrity quotes and all these things about sex education from the past few weeks. That also links to talking points, for, from news stories um, that parents can use to, you know, to bring up conversations with their kids. It provides advice and information. It showcases sex editors, and it keeps parents and teachers up to date. We are core members of the Sex Education Forum, which is the umbrella organization in this country for sex education. 
um, organizations. And so, yeah, we're definitely interested in collaborating with other organizations to raise the profile of sex education. And because our focus is all about parents, we, we're really interested in highlighting the importance of parental engagement, um, especially in this digital world that we're in. Because parents talking openly about sex and relationships, it, it really reinforces what kids learn in school, makes it more effective. Um, and of course, parents are the ones who can tra transmit to their kids their values and their beliefs. And then finally, you talked about working directly with parents. Yes. In the future, we're hoping to do webinars and things. But in the past, we've had panel discussions in schools, um, in the Conway Hall in London, and, you know, excitingly, <laughs> for Channel 4 staff. Uh, because it's really important for parents to come together as peers to compare notes with each other and hear other people's experiences and test drive saying awkward things out loud because then they can become emboldened and go home and try it at home with their families having tried it already with their with people their own age. I, I'm really fascinated by the, the, the issues that parents have when it comes to discussing sex and relationships. We often have huge sort of barriers we have to get over and confront in ourselves. Parents can often have a lot of awkwardness or embarrassment or fear we thought long and hard about this and come up with sort of a list in our minds of the kinds of things that parents have to confront in themselves. So they might have religious or cultural beliefs or past negative experiences. Um, their parents probably didn't model openness with them. So no wonder they find it hard. They, they have this, feel this need to have all the answers, which is not exactly the case. They can learn as you go as well. Or they might assume that sex and relationship topics are private or too personal. They might be worried about what other people think. If their children are, are sort of knowledgeable, they might, people, other people might be offended or judgmental or ostracize their children. Parents might be worried about giving their children ideas or pushing their boundaries or saying too much or driving their children away, or leaving the conversation too late, or the children not being, being ready or being too young. But um, commonly we find that parents are, really have fears around their children's emerging sexuality or destroying their children's innocence. And as we know, um, sheltering and shielding children learning about sexual relationships just keeps them in the dark and maintains their ignorance. And that leaves them vulnerable to abuse and more liable to seek out information from unreliable sources online and offline, like porn or peers. You mentioned online a couple of times there. And of course, that is the big thing that's changed since um, a lot of parents were themselves children. And I wonder to what extent you feel that the internet has changed the sex education conversation. It's massive. Um, there are positive changes, um, you know, in that young people can access information anonymously. Um, LGBT plus kids can find themselves represented online or connect with other people online. Uh, clearly, there are a lot of negative changes as well um, from the Internet. So the information that young people find may not be accurate and can be detrimental to their mental health. Um, but obviously, the advent of online porn is the, really the biggest change to the sex education conversation. It's the genie out of the bottle syndrome. You know, porn has sort of become arguably sex education by default for lots of young people. It's negative in many ways, although, as I said, in terms of LGBT plus kids, it could be positive for them because in sex education, we rarely talk about their feelings and attractions. Another thing is that the Internet has really turned the tables for, for in terms of parents and children, because, you know, generally parents felt they have to be expert in everything. But kids these days, these are digital natives, new digital natives. And so there's often a discrepancy between what parents think their kids are exposed to or experiencing and then what kids are actually going through online. So I think that it's really influenced how we think about education in some ways because it's made us realize we really need to involve children. We have, need to have a child-centered approach to education, not the top-down way we had before with adults preaching you know, the front of the room. And, and also the, the importance of near-peer education, the, the idea that young adults can be talking to teenagers and younger kids because they themselves have lived through similar online experiences. 
we really have a lot to learn from kids and we can, there's a reverse mentoring that happens between parents and kids. Ideally, it's a two-way street. I think that impact that you, that you describe of pornography on how we think about young people and, and when they need to start having um, good conversations about sex, it's, it's really dropped a bit of a bombshell into family lives because porn is the thing that's meant families can no longer have their head in the sand and, and try and do that thing that parents do talk about a lot. They talk about protecting their children's innocence uh, as though telling them about healthy relationships and sex is somehow going to undermine their innocence, which is something I've always really kind of struggled to struggled to fully understand. But there's no question at all that lots of parents do find it really hard to talk to their kids about sex. So when you're talking to, to families, what do you, what, what do you suggest what are the best ways for parents to approach these conversations? I think it's beginning to, to sink in for parents that it's no longer a case where you would sit down and have this big sex talk, you know, the one and done kind of conversation. Although sometimes sometimes you do need to sort of get a message across and download information into your kid in some ways. But basically the best approach is to talk about sex and relationships topics little and often. So it spirals through a chi- someone's childhood Um and as they get older, then you're going to talk about things in a more complex way or delve into other issues. Um, and in terms of how to talk with kids, it's become a bit of a truism these days where people talk about doing something in parallel with your kids. So when you don't have to look them in the eye and have the you know, uh, eye-to-eye contact, which can be intimidating or off-putting. So if you're doing the dishes together or you're driving in the car or you're out walking together, sometimes that, that breaks the ice more easily in terms of bringing subjects up. There are different ways that you can bring up sex and relationships um, in your day-to-day life, because as we know, we're living in a very hypersexualized culture. We're surrounded by images of sex all the time. But you can talk about things that are happening in people, in the lives of people you know. You can bring up things from your own past. You can use news stories as talking points. I also, I, I kind of like this idea of if you look at materials that are intended for kids, like a watch a video for kids about sex and relationship things, that, that breaks down the topics and then it makes it easier for you in a way to to discuss it with your child. But I think the whole idea of using teachable moments, you know, so if you're, if you see something on TV or in a film, you hear something on the radio, you see a billboard, you hear ads, just make a comment and ask your kids questions about what they know about different things. What would they do in that situation? And importantly, listen to them. I wonder if you think there should be different approaches for boys and girls. I'm very struck by how much news there is at the moment about sexual harassment in schools with the Everyone's Invited website. And then there's the current sit-in at Warwick University over rape culture and the failure of universities to deal with sexual assault allegations. And obviously there's the Me Too movement more broadly. There's a widespread pushback from younger women against the idea that they're available to men. Is that something that parents should be making a part of their sex education conversations? And is it something that's always been there, do you think, and is just coming to light? Or is it actually a new phenomenon which might be related to pornography? I definitely think it's a great idea to speak to girls and boys um, in the same way, because we want to foster empathy among everybody. And so girls and boys should understand the pressures that other people are under. I think it's useful if both girls and boys can recognize the pressures that each of them are under, for example, girls not being encouraged to prioritize understanding about their own bodies and pleasure and boys being circumscribed by the man box and pressures to be, you know, hyper-masculine or not show emotions. Um, but yeah, the whole issue of, of um, everyone's invited and sexual harassment in schools and whether it's a new phenomenon or something that's long existed, I think both. I mean, I think that um, 
obviously there's sort of longstanding patriarchal culture of male entitlement, you know, that men have a right to women's bodies, which basically is rape culture, and of girls and women being socialized to defer to men, so that there's a whole gender divide as well of girls' bodies and sexuality being stigmatized, whereas boys and men, their sexuality is celebrated. Um, and I think that these days, this toxic masculinity of politicians has really condoned sexual harassment, sexual misconduct. Um, I mean, these things have been there and still are there, but the online world has, has amplified the attitudes and behavior that have long existed. I mean, I mean, in terms of sexual harassment in schools, even the, the Children's Commissioner for England said recently that you know many children are harassed from a young age, um, including on their way to school, in class, on the playground. Research shows that young people are coming to university having already experienced sexual violence, or they will experience it in their first year. So we definitely need to have more of a zero tolerance approach to sexual harassment because it is so normalized these days. You know, girls being catcalled or groped in clubs or revenge porn or being pressured into sex or being sent unsolicited, explicit images. I think it's absolutely brilliant with Me Too, as you mentioned, that mar marginalized people, like people of color and women, are, have been able to have a platform and have a voice. And I'm really fascinated by this recent confluence this year, not only of issues around violence against women and girls, it was raised by the death of Sarah Everard, but also several young women who are so inspiring. They've been leading the way with movements and petitions. First, we heard about Chanel Contos um, in Australia with her Teach Us Consent petition. She started as an Instagram poll about sexual assault she had experienced. She got over 40,000 signatures and 6,000 testimonies. Um, then Everyone's Invited has over 16,000 testimonies, I think, from slut-shaming to rape. So to me, um, the idea of how to curb sexual harassment is, is kind of obvious in some ways. It's not about more streetlights or more police or undercover cops in bars. It's really calling it, calling it out for what it is, just unhealthy attitudes and behavior by men. And... The answer for me is really, in one word, just education. I love that sign that you can sometimes see, which says, protect your daughter, and that's crossed out. And underneath it says, educate your son. Because we have to teach respect and equality and consent from a young age. But also, we need to talk to everyone of every age about these things to raise awareness so we can prevent it and encourage everyone to have critical thinking and question our culture. I would absolutely agree with you that there are many examples of, of young women typically that are completely, that are inspiring, that are calling out this behaviour, that are asking for change. And I do find myself wondering how we got ourselves into such a pickle. You've, you've mentioned that we're living in a hypersexualized culture. I think, you know, we've already touched on the fact that pornography has transformed the way that we all need to think about sex and talking to young people about sex. But I wonder if you also think that it has contributed to this toxic environment that, that young women particularly are going to school in and going to university in. Is, ha, have we got to a bad place? And if we have, how come? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that pornography is um, having a real impact on young people in terms of their attitudes and their behaviour. I mean, we know that something like 66% of um, 14 to 15 year olds have seen pornography and usually it was accidental the first time. I mean, we can't prove that there's a direct causation, you know, between porn and encouraging rape culture or negative attitudes, but there seem to be, you know, pretty obvious correlations or at least relevances. Um, things like the increase in child on child sexual abuse, which was up by 71% in 2017. I mean, there's this rise in unwanted touching and sexual harassment in schools, um, rise in labiaplasty surgery where or a woman has a, a surgery on her vulva to change the look of it. 
And that's the rise of glioplasty on girls under age 18. Um, as I said before, increase in boys' body image concerns as well. So I think that porn changes young people's attitudes and behaviors because it, it perpetuates harmful gender stereotypes and unrealistic expectations of bodies and of sex and victim blaming and sexual violence, um, degradation and objectification of women. And it has detrimental effects on boys and men too, of course. Um, another thing that interests me a lot is how watching porn can influence people's arousal pathways and desires and fantasies. 29% of the girls and 44% of boys said that porn had given them ideas of trying things out. The problem is that 88% of porn is said to be violent or degrading towards women. Um, so there are all these issues around aggressiveness and misogyny and power imbalance. And you'll hear and read about anecdotally, you know, young women talking about their partners doing things that are very aggressive towards them, spitting, slapping, hair pulling, choking is a big concern. And another issue is that the women on porn sites are often are getting younger and younger. Um, and a final thing I want to say is that because porn is so performative, it, it, you know, it's very exaggerated in terms of female pleasure and there's, but there's a lack of consent as well. So regardless of all of this, I think that it's, it's really hard for us to fathom the impact of the impact on children and young people of seeing graphic images that are hard for them to unsee and they're not yet ready to process before they've even held hands with someone or kissed someone. We have yet to know what kind of impact that's going to make on future generations. Yeah, I think you're right that it's impossible to fathom the impact that all this is having. Looking back, I'm not sure that unwanted touching and a general sense that women's bodies were available is a new phenomenon. But pornography certainly can't be helping. I wonder what action you think should be taken about pornography. If you could wave a magic wand, what would you do? Anything we can do on the home front as parents in terms of having filters or blocks um, is, is very helpful just to, to push that moment away farther into the future when your child might come, will come across pornography. And then obviously talking openly at home as you can with your children about pornography, even before you think they're ready to hear about it. The online harms bill was published last week. Um, I wonder if you think that's going to be helpful. Right. Well, we know that there's been you know, this rapid rise in terms of cases of online child abuse since coronavirus and the lockdowns and everything. And so it's great that this online safety bill, it will cover content that affects children, you know, things like grooming and revenge porn and images of child abuse, um, posts about suicide and eating disorders and all that. And it's great that they say that it's especially geared at keeping children safe. A lot of people are commenting on the fact that Pornhub has not been captured by the online homes bill. Um, government apparently have already said that they acknowledge that that's an error. Um, but it is quite interesting. And I find it really fascinating that, of course, legislation can can and should must do a lot. But I'm interested in the in the culture uh, that allows a pornography industry to flourish that is promoting violent, aggressive, misogynistic, unpleasant porn that 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 it seemingly is what um, consumers are uh, asking for. And we did a podcast with uh, Jonathan Bagley, who's head of PSHE Association, and he was saying that pornography was actually changing sexual scripts, which I think is what you're describing as well, that, that young people are growing up thinking that that sort of aggressive uh, sex is is normal. Um, do you think that's something that parents actually need? Do, do parents need to get into the nitty gritty of this stuff? Or is it enough to have the sort of general conversations that I think parents feel a little bit more comfortable having? 
parents should try to have as nitty gritty a conversation as they can with their kids. Obviously, they, they wouldn't go into detail about what they themselves have necessarily seen online or what their children are seeing or doing. I think it's good to talk in general ways um, about, as I say, a news story that's out there or things that they've heard about. Um, I think it's really good to to try to talk to children about how realistic they think porn is, for example. And you, you wouldn't learn to drive a car by watching Grand Theft Auto or Fast and Furious. And so you also don't learn about healthy sex and relationships attitudes by watching porn. Sort of countering porn by talking to children about what is healthy and about intimacy and caring and love is very important as well. It's really challenging because I think most parents are quite comfortable talking about sex, you know, kind of the the traditional, more traditional topics around sex and definitely comfortable about talking about consent and, and good relationships. But I struggle to find a parent that's really comfortable talking about what a child might actually see if they're consuming porn. That's a conversation that parents find really difficult. In fact, lots of adults find it difficult to talk about pornography and what you see in pornography. Um, and I just wonder whether whether you think there's a way to fix that. Is there a way that we can get people more comfortable talking about sex, I guess is my question. I think um, the idea is really test driving and practicing with you know, a friend or a family member that you know, or just by yourself sometimes. And you just have to really just steal yourself and just launch yourself into it with your children and just try it. If it doesn't work, don't worry. It's not going to scar them for life. You will come back again in a different way, a different time. And you should be doing that throughout their childhood anyway. And you can openly say, I find this really difficult. I wasn't raised in a way that I could talk openly about these subjects, but I really want that for you. And I want you to feel more comfortable than I did growing up and et cetera. So, um, I think when it comes to talking about porn, though, I think it is important for children to understand the bigger picture of this is a huge, multi-billion pound industry. The fact that porn um, is something that's very staged and very edited and uh, people have prepared ahead of time for the, for the shoots that they have. And, and consent, although it's not shown there, is already spelled out behind the scenes. I think it's so important for parents to understand that you know, we're, we're happy to talk to our children about their futures and their careers and things. But I, I think... When it comes to sexual development, I mean, parents are very worried about talking with their children, but it is part of life and part of, you know, emotional development and physical development. They're all intertwined. And so just trying to normalize the conversation and make it part of of day-to-day life and talking about things in a matter-of-fact, factual way is really important. The whole idea of teaching consent to young children as well, because um, in terms of bodily autonomy and their body safety is is important. Teaching consent to young children starts off by, you know, showing them how to, to play nicely with other people and share toys and then to be distinguishing between safe and unwanted touch. I remember when the issue came up a few years ago about the idea that maybe you shouldn't force your child to go hug or kiss a relative if they don't want to. Um, that if at the beginning, people really pushed back against that. But I think now there's an idea that that we should be according children the... Um, you know, the right to be able to say, I, I want this, I don't want that. And if that starts from a young age, then that's a forerunner for consent when they're older. I remember my mother getting very cross with me if I ever didn't want to get changed in a shared changing room where everybody could see you. Um, but actually, it's really, really important to say to a child, if you don't want to take your swimming costume off in the shared changing area, that's completely okay. But that's 
a real shift, I think, in the way we talk to children about their bodies. And actually, one of the things that we're getting better at, I think, and parents are getting better at understanding. Um, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about the book that you have coming out in the autumn, because that's that's looking at children's mental health and well-being in a high-tech age. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the book that I've co-edited sets out some case studies of different kinds of interventions and programs in schools um, that can help children basically integrate their digital lives and their, and their non-digital lives. Um, because as we know, children's online experiences can't be you know, taken in isolation away from their general lives these days. And so it's really interesting looking at the, the play patterns that children have um, in terms of how they play online and then how they play offline but integrate digital references to their offline play sometimes. In the book, we discuss the fact that um, children's mental well-being is in decline and that, you know, there are all kinds of pressures and psychological distress that children are under academically, sexually, in terms of social media and bullying and negative body image. Unfortunately, in the UK, uh, 15-year-olds are shown to be less happy and satisfied with their lives than young people in, um, in 21 European countries. So uh, the book looks also at... Um, how digital technologies have um, given rise to what we call neuromyths. Digital technologies are often used as a scapegoat for saying that children's well-being is um, in decline. But as we know as well, um, social media is also a force for good in young people's lives. The other thing we thought about in the book is that um, moderate screen time is beneficial, but what's detrimental is having too much or too little screen time. Finally, I think that this book also emphasizes, which we've been talking about this child-centered approach to education, is the idea of what they call rebel thinking, that it, which involves genuinely listening to children and having partnerships with children in terms of education so that um, children are giving, generating evidence for policymaking um, based on their views. And that's positioning childhood within this sort of rights-based social justice framework. That's all really interesting. Um, and that conversation has been really interesting. Thank you so much, Leah, for talking to us. There's lots to think about there, and I think much of it is really quite close to where we are too. Um, it's very nice to talk to someone who's kind of approaching things from the same position. Brilliant. Well, thank you for the work that you do with Parents Zone as well. Thank you, Leo. That was absolutely fascinating, and I'm 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 going to take away a lot from this conversation. But I'm definitely going to take away some rebel thinking. I think that's a fantastic <laughs> way to describe young people being involved in policy making. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Tech Shock from Parent Zone. I'm Geraldine Bedell, and I'm Vicky Shockbolt. Listen to Tech Shock every week on a Monday, wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to sign up, download. And please do give us a five-star rating so other people can be helped to find us. And I'm Geraldine Bedell, and there's a funny beeping in the background, so I'm just going <laughs> to get rid of that. And that's not part of your usual introduction, is it, Geraldine? <laughs>